You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event on uh, the Salon, the Politics of Beauty and the Salon, part of a discussion series on the Salon that's been curated by Dr. Hannah McCann of the University of Melbourne. My name is Eve Rees, and I'll be moderating the conversation this evening. Um, I'm a historian, I'm an author, I'm a podcaster, and my pronouns are they, them, and it's my great pleasure to be here with you tonight. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're meeting here this evening on stolen land. We're on the land of the people of the Eastern Kulin nations whose sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present, as well as any Aboriginal people here with us tonight as, and any Aboriginal people who are listening later. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So tonight we're going to be talking about the politics of beauty and how that manifests in many ways. How do things like gender, sexuality, race, disability and other facets of identity intersect with the cultures of beauty and our beauty practices? I'm very pleased to introduce our wonderful panellists that we have to talk through these issues. Uh, first, we have Katie Kyle Taylor who is one of the leading First Nations um, professional makeup artists within Australia and the owner of the small business, I Think She a Freak, which is a fabulous name. <laughs> uh, Katie formed her business back in 2016 while completing her beauty diploma in specialist makeup artistry. Katie noticed during this time at beauty school the huge lack of representation of First Nations people within the beauty and cosmetic industry as well as the lack of knowledge on how to work with BIPOC clientele. She has since dedicated her work in specialising in and catering to BIPOC clientele and raising awareness of what the beauty industry is lacking when it comes to BIPOC. Next, we have Maxine Chuyo, who's a writer and podcaster. As someone whose life has been shaped and determined by the intersections of beauty and race, Maxine knows that dissecting and understanding the politics of beauty is far from a frivolous pursuit. Maxine has had writing published in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and ABC Online. Here and in her podcast, um, The Politics of Beauty, oh no, sorry, Beauty is Political, she explores how beauty is defined and by whom. Through this process, Maxine tries to discover how this affects who we are, where we belong and who and where we are allowed to be. Then last but not least, we have Shirley uh, Chu Chen, who is a PhD candidate at Monash University's School of Film, Media and Journalism. Shirley's current research focuses on the junction between contemporary feminist scholarship and queer theory in the media. 
Shirley's thesis considers how feminist subject positions and ideologies shape perceptions and representations of queer maleness on television and social media. Some of their work on this topic can be found in the European Journal of Cultural Studies. Welcome to all our panel. <laughs> um, Maxine, I wanted to direct the first question to you because you've been running a podcast called Beauty is Political. So, so you're sort of pretty much the, the expert on all the issues we're going to be talking about tonight. Yeah. So I'd like to open by asking, um, what inspired you to start this podcast, Beauty is Political, and what did you want to achieve? Well, I guess the main inspiration, honestly, is there was a pandemic and I wasn't really doing much. So that was the first part. But the second part was, I think my friend and I were getting into internet arguments with people about fake tanning. And they were just getting very, like, very weirdly offended. And we realised that there just wasn't a space for anybody that wasn't white that discussed these things. Like, people would discuss it here and there, but there was no, like, one place that you could go to where people would discuss different skin tones to do with makeup or um, hair removal or, yeah, things like fake tanning. Even small things like... Um, you know, dark shadows under your eyes, like it's a hereditary thing if you have dark skin. But if you go into like Sephora or Mire or something, they'll try to give you an eye cream for it, for something that you can't actually get rid of. And so we tried to create a space that discussed all those topics that we didn't feel there was a space for. And one of your first episodes focused on this kind of issue of skin tone and skin whitening and skin tanning. And that um, episode introduced me to the concept of blackfishing, which I'd never heard of before. Oh, you've listened to it. Um, I've listened to all your podcast episodes. Oh, um, <laughs> can you tell us what blackfishing is and why it's problematic? Okay, black fishing is when non-black people um, try to make themselves appear black. And so it originated in the US, so I guess it was based on African-American culture. And I think the misunderstanding was that people thought, like white people that were tanning thought that people of colour were saying you can't tan anymore and it's just based on tanning, but it's not. It's when non-black people choose all the um, features that they find desirable and put them all together. And I think it's more as presenting as that whole package. So a non-black person, I mean, if you are not black and you do happen to wear fake tan and it is 12 shades darker than your skin, then well, that would be weird, but that would be problematic. But the people that are just like, you know, just a little bit darker, that's fine. But so it's when non-black people, yeah, choose all these features. So it would be like skin, hair, like black hairstyles, uh, makeup, jewellery, footwear, like the whole package. And even like speaking, like, you know, black scent, like putting that all together and being able to ignore 
everything else. And so that's the first problematic part is they're, you know, they're free to remove all that stuff at the end of the day. They don't have to go through anything a person of colour goes through. And then I think the second problematic part would be that they often use it to make money. So, you know, video clips, photo shoots, that people of colour exist that way and they can't make money off it, that these non-black people can come in and do that. And I think that is also problematic. Like Iggy Azalea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, appropriating and monetizing blackness yeah, if you're not black seems like yeah. deeply problematic. Um, Katie, I wanted to go to you next. So you're a black makeup artist specializing in BIPOC clientele, as I said in your intro. What led you to open your business and, and why is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation in the beauty industry so important? Well, yeah, I guess it started back in um, uh, 2016 when I was in beauty school. Um, we did one segment on how to work with darker complexion and um, hair texture and it was, an, it was only a two-hour session. And within that session, they also spoke about how even the cosmetic brands that we use, there was no, there was, there were no kind of foundations and concealers that were fitted towards darker complexions as well. Um, and it was within that that the teachers were just like, oh, dark girls don't need um, foundation. Their skin is so dark. All you need is concealer. Concealer helps highlight and then you can use their skin to kind of shape the rest of their face. And that didn't sit well with me um, because I struggled myself as a teenager to where, to find my own shade. So I was like, anyone darker than me, I really felt so sorry for. So when I left beauty school, I was straight away was just like, I, I want to do something different. Um, I was at the start looking for someone that really represented me within the industry and I couldn't find that. Um, I couldn't find one Aboriginal or even Māori artist that kind of represented me within the space and wanted to work specifically with BIPOC clientele. And I shouldn't even have to say something like I specialise in BIPOC clientele. A makeup artist should already be trained and have that knowledge to work with any skin colour regardless. Um, so, yeah, I kind of just, I was really inspired and kind of, um, there were a lot of black UK and US makeup artists that kind of pushed my journey towards that. Um, and yeah, I have family members, I have friends um, of other um, people of colour nationalities. So they were just as dark and they didn't have anybody that could ever do their makeup. So I kind of just went down that pathway and I was just like, and I've been killing it kind of since. But I'm constantly always wanting to, um, I never say I master it. I always say I'm always wanting to learn more, always wanting to kind of um, support brands that are really inclusive um, and really do the work and they're not really performative um, within those spaces. Um, but yeah, again, then when it comes down to then First Nations people within the Australian um, beauty scene, it was really, really disappointing there because we're so, we're stunning. Like we're all, we're all beautiful. But it was again, like they had... I think the only model at the time that I really um, saw was Samantha Harris. 
and she's stunning. Um, she also follows me now and she likes my photos. <laughs> and I'm always like, I love you. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, she, she was the only kind of um, Aboriginal model out there. Um, sorry, I just got lipstick. <laughs> um, yeah, so she was the only Aboriginal model out there that kind of represented that space. But I was just like, there's so much more that we can bring to the table. And through the last seven years, I've constantly having to kind of prove myself in a predominantly white industry. Um, but yeah, I think that's, does that answer the question? I don't know. <laughs> and so, I could go on for days. <laughs> and like, it sounds like, as you said, you've been killing it since you set up the business. Yeah, I really think so. Yeah. Like, <laughs> is the industry as a whole changing? Like, are there more, yeah, more black models, more black absolutely. makeup artists? Yeah. Um, and I can't help but think that I've helped kind of create that pathway for other First Nations makeup artists and models to kind of come through. Um, and I hope they're coming through an easier pathway than what I went through because it was constantly having to prove yourself. You weren't getting paid the same as the white makeup artist. You weren't, you were looked at differently. I never got the jobs at the countertop, no matter how many times I was like, I can do way better than everyone here. Um, yeah, but it's, it's completely different now. And there's so many First Nations like beauty gurus and, and influencers. So it's really, really nice to see that. Um, and... It's, it's nice to also kind of be involved in the kind of um, change within the cosmetic industry as well. Last year I was on, um, I worked on a campaign with Adore Beauty called Global Shades Movement and um, Campaign and it was about raising awareness um, within, the, within the Australian beauty industry on the lack of shade range that they had available to us um, and brands, I won't name obviously brands, but um, there were even our retail stores. Um, they had the shades, they just didn't stock them within Australia. And it came down to they thought of Australia as a white nation. So they were only sending and only kind of giving us um, the lighter shades when they, they definitely had or they, or they also didn't have. But yeah, we're a really diverse continent. And um, yeah, it was really, really nice to be part of that um, movement last year and um, kind of still riding that roller coaster with it. Um, and it's nice to see a lot of brands kind of come around now. It's a bit late. I mean, yeah, it's solid several years late, but um, it's, it's happening and it's baby steps. And I guess yeah, I'm almost used to the fact that when there's change, it always has to be this kind of baby step approach and it's something. Does that answer that? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm really you. sorry. <laughs> Don't apologise. It's fabulous. Um, Shelley, I want to turn to your work now. Um, you're a researcher looking at queerness um, and its intersections with beauty culture and you've been doing some fascinating research at, on gay male beauty influences like uh, James Charles. Now, I, I was aware that, you know, more men were entering the beauty space, but I had no idea until I read your research how big this was. Um, your research taught me that half of the 10 most followed beauty influencers on Instagram are men. Um, and when I checked James Charles's account yesterday, he has 23 million followers, which is quite stunning. 
Can you tell us um, how these male beauty influencers are performing femininity and what does this tell us about the politics of beauty today? Um, yeah, I mean, I did that research a couple of years ago. So the numbers, like, they might have changed, but there's definitely, like, at the time that I started to become interested in gay male beauty influences, I really was noticing, um, particularly, like, because when I was a teenager, I did have an interest in makeup and I found myself, like, as a queer person, gravitate, gravitating to queer men. And I kind of, like, I did that research as a way to kind of unpack that, you know, that kind of, um, yeah, like that, like gravitation in myself almost because I was like, well, why in this industry that is like, you know, predominantly focused on, you know, the bodies, the complexions and also, you know, the wallets of women, like why are some of the most powerful figures here and the most followed figures here men, right? Um, and I think like in, in my research, I kind of ultimately argued that there's these sort of, tensions that we have to navigate, right? We have, we have this tension of like wanting to uphold or achieve this particular beauty standard, but also that's kind of competing with this idea that we all need to be unique and we all need to be different and that we're all individuals. Um, and so there's kind of this range of um, contradictions that we run into. And I feel like, like ultimately, one of the most compelling things, I guess, about gay male beauty influences is that they kind of overcome some of those tensions, right? Like we're able to kind of indulge in this fantasy that wearing makeup and like, um, you know, wanting to look a certain way is truly freely chosen. Um, when, you know, a lot of the time, yeah, there are debates around like, do I want to look this way because of societal pressure? Do I want to look this way because I want to? And like we're always kind of going back and forth with those things. And I think um, what kind of makes gay male beauty influences so compelling is that, yeah, there's, there's this sense and there's this fantasy that they've overcome that. And um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think also, you know, it kind of speaks to the challenges that like women or femme people or more female presenting people face um, that... Yeah, I think not to say that like men don't face issues with engaging with beauty culture, um, but I think it does kind of speak to these particular challenges, you know, for women and for femme presenting people, certainly. And I wanted to sort of, I suppose, um, develop these gender questions a bit further because I'm really interested in the kind of relationship between beauty culture and the gender binary. Like, as, as a non-binary person myself, I've felt like my relationship to beauty culture really hard to kind of navigate over, you know, recent years because I'm not a woman, but also, like, the kind of the growth of, like, male beauty products just seems so kind of ridiculously butch and kind of playing into all these, like, stereotypical norms of maleness that I don't identify with either. So, I mean, this is a question for all three of you. I'm interested to hear if you think that, you know in the 2020s, is beauty culture still something that just kind of reinforces a gender binary? Like, is it something that women engage in to become feminine and to define themselves against men? Or are we reaching a point where beauty is for everyone, kind of regardless of their gender and beyond the binary? <laughs> it's a real 
real spicy question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really challenging because I think we have this this desire to push beauty beyond the binary, you know, and I think it sounds sounds really lovely and it it is, I think, something that I think would be fantastic as uh, as a society to achieve. But at the same time, like, we have these kind of historical connections um, and these beauty practices haven't, you know, they haven't emerged from nowhere. They've come through, like, histories of, you know, white supremacy. They've come through histories of misogyny. They've come through histories of patriarchy. And I think the work of decoupling all of that can't be done simply by... Um, by, you know, saying that, well, everybody can partake in this. Um, because I think those practices are coloured in a way that you can't necessarily separate them from those histories. Um, and I, I think it is really challenging because, like, it's... I, I'm not wanting to condemn or say that those... Pra like, you know, wanting to do those things is bad, right? Like... Um, like, we know, for example, that hair removal comes from this history of misogyny, right? But it, a lot of us still desire that and a lot of us feel good when we do that. And there's, and you know, it, it's this kind of real complex, like, tightrope of... It's not the behaviours themselves that we should be condemning, but at the same time, there's this real attachment and connection to these histories. And I think we can't pretend that that's not there. Um, so I don't really have a good answer, I guess. <laughs> no, that was very, very um, illuminating reflections. Um, did either of you want to contribute or jump in? No. You said that really yeah. well. <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask, I was more about hair removal because, of course, you know, it's, it's got a kind of really sexist history but a really racist history as well that, um, you know, hair removal as a mainstream practice only dates back about a century and it was really kind of emerged from this idea that body hair is associated with, you know, blackness and it was racialized. So, I mean, this is something I've kind of grappled with a lot. Like, do we, as individuals, do you think we have a responsibility to try and, you know, avoid these practices that have such kind of problematic histories? Like, are we reinforcing that harm when we engage in them ourselves or can we, can we remove our body hair or do something else for other reasons and kind of separate from those histories? I feel like you can't ask me this question. <laughs> I'm like lasered all over. <laughs> but in saying that, I was mm. just saying before, like I was never hairy yeah, to begin yeah. with. I was just oh, yeah, I just, I'm just going to go lasered. And I, and I also got it because I had really severe eczema scarring. Yeah, and actually yeah, yeah, yeah. That. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, hair, I'm, I'm kind of all, like, happy either yeah, way. Yeah, um, Comes down, to, I guess, to pers like the individual themselves. Yeah. I feel like nowadays we're... I, I would like to think that we all just can kind of individually decide for ourselves without having to think that that's going to associate with that. Because, I mean, in my life, I'm just like, there's other things yeah. that I'm, like, dealing with. Yeah. 
the racist they, history that of hair racist, removal yes. is not the that, biggest I was like, concern. that's not yeah. the biggest concern. That's not like the major priority on my list. I'm not really fighting that system at the moment. Um, but yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, there is so much going on at the moment and I don't think that's the fight we need to have right now. Like, sure, be aware of it. Try to understand where that's coming from. Um, and I was going to ask, because you said it wasn't, you weren't aware of, like you didn't do it for racial reasons, getting rid of your hair. Did you go to a school with other people of colour? So I was like one of three other Aboriginal students. Yeah. I went to an international girls' school. Yeah. It was PLC. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty much, I mean, even the, like, other, like, people of colour girls, they were pretty whitewashed. Yeah. So I was always the, the black kid. The, um, and I grew up with, I went to a Japanese primary school, so I grew up with a lot of Asians, um, and I loved that. So, I, so when I went to PLC and it was an international girls' school, I was kind of just in my zone. I was like, yeah, I'm comfortable. Um, but growing up in that school, mm. I always thought about how... Um, Oh, I wouldn't even call it bullying. Maybe I was just so oblivious to it half the time that I just didn't even care what other people had to say. But it seemed like whatever I did just was associated with then my culture, nationality and things like that. Um, or, um, oh, I don't know, I can't even give a really exact... Everything I did just seemed weird. Yeah. and Or I just wasn't... I was like not pretty, but I was like, but I, I knew I was pretty. <laughs> um, and I, I thank my confidence that I've had since I was a kid um, and what my mother instilled in me because, yeah, going to a predominantly, like, white school, it was a white school, um, yeah, it was hard, but I just, I don't know, I kind of just... I don't know how I got through high school, honestly. Kind of just waved right through it and I didn't really care. Yeah. Um, but again, that comes from the strength that I have in both my nationalities that I was like, I don't actually care what anyone else has to say. Love your mum. Oh, love my mum. Love mom. your work, mum. Yeah. yeah, love her work. <laughs> I always believed, because I've always been plus size as well, so, um, yeah, I was like the fat black kid, but I was like, whatever, I actually don't even care because um, I'd rather be this than I felt really sorry for all the other, um, like, other girls of colour that just kind of went along with this kind of whiteness within the school um, because I think now after high school they're really embracing their actual nationalities um, that's, that's exactly what I did. Which is... Like, my relationship with beauty started when I tried to be as white as possible. Like, there was no... Everyone was white in my high school. There was one girl who's Indonesian and she was adopted. She had two white parents. But that's as far as it went. And so my relationship with beauty started with how can I blend in? And, like, that's when I started ironing my hair with the clothes iron I use. Like, I'm not even that dark, but at that school, I was so dark. Like, I used skin whitening products. I used very light foundation, which is not a good idea, just to, to try fit in. 
And I think that's like, if I really think about where my hair removal came from, it probably stemmed from that and just trying to look more like everybody else, even though when I went in, I probably wasn't thinking that. But I think that's probably where it began. So I think where you went to school in those like very important years of puberty being so important and your appearance being so important really makes a huge difference and your mum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, cause I always believed if my mum didn't say it, it's not true. <laughs> I went through life like that. <laughs> your mum sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your mum now? Oh, she's working. She went to mum last night, but when I got moved. Um, as we've been discussing, you know, one of the biggest influences in what we think about beauty and the beauty ideals we aspire to is school. But another one is increasingly the internet and social media. And I wanted to ask you all whether you think social media, particularly beauty influencers on Instagram, have they been a force for good in diversifying beauty or, you know, or are they just still kind of reinforcing the same old beauty tropes? I think I think it's um, I think it's difficult to say because um, I think yes I think there are a lot of niches that are developing and I think that is a really kind of positive way that um, yeah like that social media is able to kind of um, kind of like represent and allow people to kind of take t- control of their of um, the types of images that they're seeing and the types of beauty that they have access to. And I think that's a really, like, powerful part of social media. But at the same time, um, like, because my research was based on, like, the most kind of mainstream part of, um, like, beauty influencer culture, at least on Instagram, um, like, you're still seeing, you know, like, you might have... um, You might have a kind of minority influencer, you know, with 100,000 followers, but you're still getting, like, white men with 23 million followers, right? So there's this kind of, um, yeah, there's this kind of uh, interplay between, well, are we, are we talking about the niches which are powerful in their own right or are we kind of talking about the mainstream forces of beauty which I think are, continue to be um, very troubling um, and continue to, yeah, like, reinforce particular... Uh, problematic kind of um, attitudes and problematic representations. Yeah. And Katie, you're pretty active on Instagram. That's been obviously a big way you've built your brand. Do you feel like that's really helped, you know, improve First Nations diversity in the Australian beauty space? Absolutely. Um, Look, there's there's pros and cons Mm. to obviously social media and um, obviously having my my um, makeup business as well as working full-time in education Mm. with Aboriginal youth um, and being an Aboriginal coordinator. um, I have seen how my girls go, but you know what is the most heartwarming thing is what before I when I came into the role in 2020 um, I, I walked into the room and had to meet um, all these Aboriginal students and straight away they were like oh, that's her that's I think she had break oh my god is she was a famous beauty influencer <laughs> like, is she our coordinator and and watching my girls grow um, I see a lot of myself in them and I like to think as well that I've 
kind of had that impact on them. And I can only imagine over these years now that more of First Nation influences have come in to the space, that, the, that my girls and, and even my boys are able to embrace themselves a lot better. So I can see in that sense where social media has helped them. But then I can also see social media just influencing them like TikTok to do really dumb stuff. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, that is so dumb. Um, but at the same time, then they're, they're wanting to experiment more. And that's how I was when I was a teenager. I liked to experiment with different makeup looks. And if, if my girls feel influenced because I wore something and I just was like, whatever, I like it, I, I'm going to wear it. And they kind of take that on board like, oh, um, if she's going to do it, I'm going to do it. Well, then I feel like I've done a solid job. And I feel like a lot of other First Nations um, influencers have definitely done their work without even knowing the kind of impact that they're having firsthand working with um, youth. Um, so it's nice to see my girls like themselves, love themselves and kind of embrace, um, obviously, then I've got girls that are, are quite dark and um, they're just kind of embracing that as well. And then having um, the kind of access to then ha the kind of cosmetic world and cosmetic side and actually being able to then find their shade and things like that has is, is been nice because I was wearing like a grey foundation when I was, I was trying to mix bronzes and things. It never worked. But That's how I used to describe my skin colour, as grey. It was grey. I mean, <laughs> because there was nothing else. I was always this beige shade, but it was grey or pink undertone. It was never my colour. Yeah, I think the cheaper foundations, they just... It was Maybelline. Yeah, they just add black, like some black pigment to keep getting it darker and that's why it comes out so ashy. Ashy. Yeah. I looked casket ready Yeah. as and a teenager. Ask, but I just rocked it. <laughs> well, I was trying to look whiter, so I think I probably got a shade too light. Do they make... Because... I've never gone to like Chemist Warehouse to get or Priceline to get foundation. Do, but do they stock darker shades now? They have them. Whether they actually stock them on the shelves is another question that we still seem to be fighting every day um, because there's always the excuse there's no shelf space um, or like I went into a store recently and they just didn't have it, but I know that brand themselves actually have it. And they told me to go to that actual store, to the biggest store so that they I could get that shade. But I was like, but you're telling me that you guys will only still stock the lighter shades. I was like, you've got three shades here that are pretty close. You don't need them. It could have been like a darker shades. Seven um, shades of white. All yes. needed. And I, and I made that post on um, my Instagram. I was really, really upset with um, that retail store because I'm actually going to be working with them um, in, for Sydney Fashion Week. And <laughs> I'm going to come in with a list um, <laughs> as a head artist. So, yeah, it will be a really interesting time over the next three months working with them. Um, but yeah, because that, that brand that they stocked actually had the shades. I know they did, but they didn't have them in store. And it was like that at all their retail stores. Then you had to go to that actual brand's bigger store. Yeah, I think their argument is that people weren't buying it, but people can't buy it if it's, it's not, not there. there. <laughs> if it's not there. It's like plus there. size clothing. Like you can't buy it if it's not there. Yeah, that's, that's, why, that's why they're that's not buying it. That's another conversation because all of that yeah. stuff is online. And I'm like, why? 
why did I get in my car and come down here if you don't have it? And then I felt really bad saying that to the retail. Anyway, that's uh, another conversation. I don't think you should apply. That's like very important work. I wanted to ask now about um, one of the biggest beauty trends of recent years, which is skincare. Um, I myself have fallen victim during um, lockdown last year. I went pretty much overnight from having a one-step skincare regime to like this very intense 10-step thing. Um, And I got very, very down the rabbit hole on Adore Beauty and bought a lot of things and it was quite fun. Um, But obviously there's a lot of complex politics going on in this kind of obsession with skincare and products, you know, like retinol and vitamin C and so on as well. So I wanted to ask each of you, what do you think is behind this kind of sudden obsession with skincare? Why are we all suddenly doing 10-step skincare regimes? I just thought it was an evolution of, like, the evolution of makeup, as in it was maybe 50 years ago you had one red shade of lipstick and now you have 74. Not, you know, you might own 17, but there could be 74 available. And because beauty and skincare is quite a lucrative industry, it's, there's a high profit margin, you don't need to pay workers, it's, or, you know, there's not a poor worker mixing up your cream somewhere, it's machines. So I assumed it was an evolution of that and an evolution of playing on people's insecurities and why have a one-step skincare routine when you can have a 14-step? So so it's just capitalism. It's just capitalism creating more products. Yeah, that's my understanding (laughs) of it. And, like, yeah, the more people see something, of course they're going to want to try it. It's fun. Um, I think... um, I think it's really interesting, I guess, that a lot of people have identified the pandemic as this point where everybody started to become obsessed with skincare because, like, um, East Asians have been obsessed with skincare for, like, the past couple of decades, right? So, like, I feel like growing up I was kind of always exposed to... um, exposed to, like, this kind of excessive pursuit for perfect skin. Like, not in my family, because my family is very working class, and so, like, we never paid for skincare growing up. But, you know, you'd, like, you'd be watching, like, K-pop videos in 2005 or whatever, and and everybody would have, like, glowing, perfect, amazing skin. And I think that kind of 10-step skincare culture was, like, really, you know, taking off in Asia, like, ages ago. Um, Yeah, so I, I think that the way that it's been taken up in the West has been really interesting. Um, And I've noticed this kind of trend of, like, there's this real obsession with, like, minimal skincare, like, scientific skincare, ingredient-based skincare that that I've noticed kind of coming into, like, the more 10-step Western skincare routines. There's, like, well, you've got to have your niacinamide. You've got to have your salicylic acid. You've got to have your, like... Arbutin or whatever, like, you know, you've got to have all these, like, specific compounds. Um, And I feel like kind of early on in the kind of Asian trend, it was more product-based. So I I don't know where I'm going with this answer, but I I just feel like it is interesting that there is this kind of, like, there is this, like, scientific side to the way that skincare has now taken off. Um, and I think, I don't know, there's, maybe there's some kind of like real desire to overanalyze, to get to the root of things, to, to have like 
answers for things um, and maybe in some real kind of esoteric philosophical way, maybe the pandemic has brought out that desire in a lot of us, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I've wondered if it's about control mm. because I found myself gravitating towards skincare at this time of high anxiety and uncertainty and it, you know, the kind of scientific language and the sense that if you just get the order and the steps right, you'll have perfect skin. It did feel like a kind of pursuit for control. And the psychology behind it for me felt very reminiscent of the psychology of eating disorders, which I've had in the past, which are, you know, also often a pursuit of control. Um, what do you think about all skincare, I skincare. Kate? I yeah. love skincare. You love skincare. Um, <laughs> why why like... do you think we're all into it? Um, well, I know for me... Um, I've had a pretty, it was only probably three-step skincare routine back when I was a teenager. Um, but Cleanse, tone, moisturise. Yeah, basically. it was yeah, just yeah. always wash, take care of your yeah. skin. Um, and I always wanted to look like my mum when she, she doesn't age. And I was like, I want that. Um, and it was taking care of your skin. Mm. But in saying that, it wasn't until um, the pandemic that I just became this skincare guru person mm. I felt. Um, <laughs> um, because, yeah, I started investing in skincare a lot. I started, I, I have severe PTSD. Mm. Um, and obviously the pandemic didn't do that great. Um, but I would just break out heaps and I just wanted something to manage it all um, and I found that yeah I kind of just kind of experimented with different kind of skincare brands but I kind of made sure I went towards ones that weren't skin brightening I wasn't really into mm. that I was like why is because that's too much like skin whitening whitening or, yeah, and it was yeah. just about kind of um like over exfoliating your skin and things like that. I was like, I, I don't want to do that. Um, and yeah, it even came down to even sunscreens, like finding sunscreens that didn't give you that white cast. Mm. Um, you can't escape the grey. You can't. I really, <laughs> I really can't. I really can't. Um, but I have. But it took a while. Um, but yeah, like during the pandemic and now I've got this solid skincare routine um, which is great but I think that just came part of also the self-care routine that I had to make for myself so that I could function for the last two years um, but yeah I don't know but... yeah I wanted to ask more generally how you think the pandemic and the lockdowns the very long lockdowns we experienced here in Melbourne have affected um, the culture of beauty. Because, of course, you know, for a lot of the last two years, we couldn't go to salons. We couldn't go and get hair removal. We couldn't get, you know, haircuts and facials and so on. So do you think that's made people kind of turn more to DIY? I was going to say DIY. Yeah, yeah. DIY. I went back to my 14-year-old ways of like press on nails. Now I'm a press on nail fanatic. Um, I've got that I've got that all going for me. Um, yeah, DIY ha oh, hairstyles, bleaching my hair, my hairdresser killed me. Um, yeah, everything was DIY. And then when you came out of the pandemic, um, kind of haven't gone back to a proper salon. So since. DIY is here to stay. Yeah, I think especially with the press-ons, I found when I went to salons, they always cut me and I got scared that my finger would get infected and it would be game over. Um, but the, yeah, it was kind of nice being able to change your nails every second, third day. You just felt like an influencer. 
Oh, I don't know. You felt famous? Maybe a Kardashian. That's the last person I want to be. But um, you felt like that kind of level, but you're just sitting at home. So it felt nice. So it's a way to kind of glamorize, glamorize and feel better and about being stuck at home. feel better about being stuck at home. But you kind of, yeah, then picked up these DIY skills that you probably did when you were younger and you didn't have a job or something like that. Um, and you wanted to save money because um, that's what I used to do. Just DIY all the way and... I've been doing it since and it's great. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. And what about Zoom? I've heard, you know, oh. I, I certainly spent a lot of the last two years on Zoom meetings and I hate looking at myself on Zoom. And I've heard a lot of um, kind of anecdotal discussion that that experience that a lot of people have of looking at themselves on Zoom has led to kind of an increased interest in cosmetic procedures and surgeries and so on. Is that something you've noticed in your research, Shirley? Um, I think I've I've also heard anecdotally, I think they've been calling it like Zoom dysphoria or something, which is really, um, it's really like troubling to know that, um, that looking at yourself is is something that can make you feel so, so bad and to seek out like, and to, like, make you desire to change yourself in that way. Um, I'm, I'm not actually really sure because I'm working with Dr. Hannah McCann on the um, Beyond Skin Deep project and looking at beauty salons and beauty work. Um, and Zoom sort of... And the pandemic has actually been something we've talked to, um, to the interviewees about. Um, but I don't actually think any of them specifically mentioned, like, Zoom dysphoria... Um, but also I think at the time that the interviews were being conducted, it wasn't really this thing that had emerged yet, so we couldn't specifically ask them those questions. So, yeah, it's not something that I've personally encountered, but I have been, yeah, seeing a lot of it. Um, and, yeah, it, I just find it really troubling. <laughs> yeah, I've certainly had friends who say they've, you know, started to think about plastic surgery for the first time as a result of Zoom, which I agree is quite troubling. Maxine, did you have any reflections on how the pandemic has changed beauty in any ways? Um, with the Zoom dysphoria thing, mm. I feel like it's the combination of the pandemic and Zoom. Like if, we, if people were just using Zoom in their office, it's like what you're saying about the skincare, you know, needing that element of control mm. during the pandemic. And I think because there's not other things going on at the moment and so maybe staring at your face all day you want control over your face like it seemed like everyone kind of like that's the best thing I can make of it um and as for DIY stuff I found it so cleansing my nails grew out like my fake nails eventually came off my lashes came off and I haven't got my nails done again like, I got into nail art, yeah. nail stickers. Yeah. It was so fun and so cathartic. It's so cheap. Yeah. eBay. eBay. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, I wanted to also talk about the salon itself as, as a physical space. Um, you know, we've been talking through this discussion about how, you know, beauty culture is kind of slowly diversifying in many ways. But I think you know, the physical space of the salon can still be quite an unwelcoming space for certain types of bodies. You know, I certainly find as a trans person, I often feel really uncomfortable coming into salons, hairdressers, because I'm not sure how I'm going to be read. 
And I imagine it's, you know, it's true for lots of other types of kind of minoritized bodies, including black bodies, fat bodies, disabled bodies. What are your thoughts on how salons and other beauty spaces need to change to be more welcoming to all bodies? Do we need a more diverse workforce? Everywhere I go is already very diverse. Yeah. Like, I can't... I'm trying to, like, picture... I'm thinking the same. Yeah. I was so like, it's, yeah. I think it comes down almost to that individual again. Like, crowd, you know, Yeah, it's like, because I already purposely mm. go to places that I know... It, for me, it's more of a cultural... Like, mm. where's something somewhere culturally safe for yeah. me to go? Um, and, yeah, I don't even think about the rest. Um, but I'll always go to someone that I know, like, a friend or a family member has gone to. Um, and that's how I just know it's yeah. going to be okay. Yeah, so it's about building relationships building with particular, relationships. like, absolutely. salons and salon workers that you trust. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Like, you wouldn't go anywhere by chance. Like, I wouldn't randomly go into, like, yeah. try a new hairdresser. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- this question is kind of... It's kind of challenging for me, I guess, because, like, growing up super working class, my dad always cut my hair, you know, like, um, even as an adult, my dad still cuts my hair. (laughs) Um, And I genuinely can maybe count on two hands the number of times, like, in my entire life that I've had my hair professionally cut. Um, But, yeah, like, I guess in my experience, I've always gone for the cheapest possible option, you know. Um, and, like, even then, thinking about those experiences, right, I, um, like, obviously present much more feminine at the moment, but, like, there were, have been times in my life where I have kind of um, preferred to present in a much more butch um, kind of manner. And it was always challenging going to these very, like, cheap places, wanting to get, like, a really, like, masculine haircut and being questioned about it and, you know, like often having the hairdresser trying to recommend something different to me. Um, And at the same time, um, you know, I also want to be going to salons that know how to work with Asian hair. Um, And so I think there's like, there's definitely those challenges with class, with gender, um, with race that have kind of come up for me throughout like my experiences with the salon. And I think, you know, going to going to queer friendly salons um, might, you know, make the gender stuff easier, but it might also um, be more challenging in that they, you know, perhaps don't know how to work with my hair, uh, might not be in a price bracket that I can afford, you know. So I think there's all these kind of challenges that come up um, in terms of access to beauty services. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't really know how to make those things better, right? Because, um, like, I, I think salon workers should be paid better. You know, I, I think that you should be paying what they're worth. You know, I, I, unless you kind of have to, I don't recommend always going to the cheapest place, right? Like, I do think that this is really important work and it's skilled work, you know, and it's work that deserves to be compensated well, Um so, yeah, it's, it's very challenging because uh, it's, it's hard to know, right, what the solution to those things are. Thanks. We've been talking about a lot of the different kind of structural forces that 
define, you know, beauty, culture, you know, race, gender, class. Um, but we haven't talked about one that I think is really important and I want to touch on it now, which is age. You know, so much of beauty culture is infused with this idea that we want to make ourselves look younger and avoid ageing and preserve youth and all those kind of tropes. But that, of course, implies that, you know, that older people are ugly and that age is something to be avoided and it's all, you know, it's all deeply ageist. So I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on ageism in beauty culture. Do you think it's a problem? How do we avoid it? I think it's a problem in society. Like, yeah. beauty is way down here and society's obsessed with age. Like, you know, young people achieving things is spoken about. There's those, like, lists, 30 under 30. People, like, people are just obsessed with young people and mentioning people's ages all the time. It's like a weird thing that there's other... I don't know, facts about somebody that just are never mentioned, but it's always like, Katie, how old are you? 25. 25. Like, I don't, that's got nothing to do with it right now. Yeah. So before, and like movies, TV shows, before beauty, like it's like the trickle down at the bottom. Like all this other stuff needs to change first. And like the beauty industry could do a minimum, which would be like using more models, um, not talking about anti-aging so much, but maybe talking about skin health or protecting, like using sunscreen um, to not get cancer rather than anti-aging purposes. Like it could do those like bare minimum things, which they should do, but before all the other stuff is addressed, I don't think there's like much hope. So yeah, beauty industry yeah. just reflects broader social norms yeah. around age. We need to change them first. Yeah. yeah. Maxine, did you, look, you look like you wanted to jump in. Oh, no, sorry. Sure. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I agree with everything Maxine said. I do, like, that 30 under 30 stuff. Yeah. It's, I find it really grating. You know, I have, I have, I'm in my late 20s, um, but I have, like, you know, my friends, obviously, a similar age to me are like, oh, I'm going to be 30 soon. I'm so old. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, there's this so much more to life than worrying about your age but it, it's this thing that we like fixate on right and it's it's um and I think it's sad I think it's sad that we we see like this number going up as this thing to mourn um and I, I do think it's important to you know celebrate the things that we have achieved through our lives and celebrate the time that we have been on this earth um yeah but even then like speaking about I guess the beauty industry like personally right um I do kind of, uh, am, like, I do try to be conscious of, like, you know, the sunscreen example of thinking about sunscreen as a way to protect your skin's health than, like, you know, explicitly thinking about anti-aging. But at the same time, I'm like, I say those things out loud, but in my head I'm like, yeah, and I won't get wrinkles. So, you know, like, we're still, like, guilty of, like, of, like, thinking about things through that frame. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so hard. It's so hard to to not do that. Um, and I, I, like, obviously, like, all of us personally not thinking about anti-aging isn't going to change, like, the structural issue. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think it's kind of embedded um, so deeply in the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about our lives and 
the way that we think about beauty practices. Um, and I, I do think that like modeling those changes is good, right? Because the more we we hear other people talk about um, talk about skin as, you know, skin is the largest organ of, like of your body, right? And it's important to protect it. Um, and it's important to look after it. So I think, I guess, the more we hear other people kind of modeling those sorts of thought patterns as opposed to like talking about these things as anti-aging and as like not wanting to get old and not wanting to like be ugly or whatever. I, I think that um, that does kind of lead to people being more likely to, to change their perspectives and they see things a different way. And so I do think that like, yes, beauty is not necessarily the highest priority, but it's still such a significant part of our lives. And I think that changing the way that we think about beauty can also, you know, affect the way that we see other things. Thanks. Now, we've got to wrap up in a moment, but I just wanted to ask one final question to each of you, which is, what are your hopes for the future of beauty? I mean, even now I can see how how it's progressing and it's it's looking really nice in comparison to like when I was a 13 year old to now oh, I'm really I'm really hopeful um, that yeah that there's more kind of bipoc within the beauty scene um, because we've seen how how much more stronger that comes and how how we bring different things to the table because um, when we bring a person of colour, especially even a First Nations person, we're not here just for ourselves. We're here for the rest of our community. We're here for representation. So if we kind of keep striving towards that, I'll be really happy and I feel like I'm, I hopefully can keep at that with the rest of... Well, it sounds like you'll be leading that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> please, no. <laughs> um... So apart from all the beautiful things that we'd hope, like, that are quite obvious of, like, everybody thinking about things more and being more inclusive and, like, genuinely enjoying what they're doing and genuinely, like, loving themselves and how they look, another thing I would like to change in the future... Was that the question? Change in the future? Or what are your hopes for the future? The hopes or, for the yeah. future. One of my strange hopes for the future is that beauty service providers got paid more. And I've been thinking about this a lot weirdly. And it's just because my friends talk about, like they won't complain about buying a $300 linen bedspread, but they will be like $120 for a haircut. I'm not going to do that. And I don't think they quite understand what goes into providing services like that and that that hairdresser is not making $120 per hour. That's not how it works. And you and your salary job, like, you could sit there and stare at the wall for 20 minutes and you're going to get paid, but your hairdresser is not. Like, they're not working, they're not making money. And so I wish there was more awareness around, yeah, all beauty service providers and they got paid more. Like, if, like even uh, nail salons, like, people are always trying to find the cheapest. Like, you pay $45 and you're there for an hour and a half. Like, 
someone is losing money there. And it's not spoken about enough. And I feel the future might be a sliding scale or a percentage of someone's pay so it can make up for it or something. But I really would like these service providers to have yeah. a lot more money. Yeah, I love that. A recognition of the true skill and expertise yeah. and resources that and go into that. Level. I don't think people understand it. And I think that's mm. part of the problem. So it would be like education, like a sole trader, this is how much they make. They have to pay for overheads. They're not cutting your hair in a tent or a park. Like they're <laughs> paying rent, Yeah, you know. Thank you. And Shelley, what would you like to see change? Or what are your hopes for the future? Of yeah, I, I think you both, you both made such great points. And I think, um, yeah, Katie, you know, you're so right. There's like so much amazing and such important work being done in terms of diversity. And I think like that conversation about, you know, paying our service providers. And I was thinking about how I was saying, like I always go to the cheapest place, like guiltily, but... Shamed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, I, I absolutely am, have, like, now that I am in a position where I make a little bit more money, I do, you know, I do try to, um, even if I'm going to a salon that doesn't charge very much, I try to make sure I'm tipping, you know, I'm try, I try to, like, be really conscious of the level of labour and the level of care that goes into something... Uh, and I think, you know, um, that kind of talk about like, oh, I can't believe I have to pay $120 for a haircut. But, you know, if you get a bad haircut, it's like, it, like your life is ruined for the next three months, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's actually this really kind of critical part of yourself that, that you're, you're also devaluing, you know, the work that goes into that and the level of care that goes into that. Um, but yeah, sorry, that was a big tangent. <laughs> um, in terms of like hopes for the future, I... I don't know. I think this is a really challenging question um, for me because I've, I've kind of tried to, like through my work, imagine what beauty would look like outside of capitalism. And I think my only reference point for that is, is my family um, because I come from, essentially I come from peasantry, you know. I come from like people who... My, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, you know, came from villages and, you know, lived, lived kind of farming and growing food and preserving food and those sorts of things. And so um, beauty was kind of never really a big part of their life. You know, it was not something that they thought about. It's not something my mum thinks about. She, you know, d like literally doesn't care. And it was, it was something that I really, you know growing up in a Western society as a migrant have been exposed to beauty in a different way than my family would have been. And so I've been trying to imagine what beauty would look like outside of capitalism. And I, it's, it's almost like I can't, I can't imagine it, right? I, I don't know. I don't know where it would be. Like, would we not care or would we all be free to like do whatever we wanted? Um, would, we, would we not be so kind of obsessed with with looking a certain way, you know, would gender not be a factor? Like there's all these questions and it's, it's so hard to know. But I, I talked to um, Hannah McCann about this and she, the way that she put it was not that we're looking for answers, but we're just looking for a glimmer on the horizon, I guess. And I've always kind of held on to that and just thought about, yeah, the, the future is not certain, but I think definitely we're, we're taking steps and things are changing and we'll see where it goes. <laughs> I think all the three of you are really doing amazing work contributing to that 
that, you know, more inclusive, less oppressive future of beauty. So thank you all for your work and thank you for your wonderful comments this evening. Um, that's all we have time for. Um, but thank you for coming um, and good night. <laughs>